Hello and welcome to the Film Doctor. It's been a long time. Oh my god, I've been procrastinating so much on this. My last episode was around... Oh shit. December... No, November, December, January... Shit, sorry, I've had like a few glasses of champagne. I can't remember. December, January, February. Okay, three months ago. That's not too bad. But I did say around that time that I'd be releasing a new podcast episode every single week. And then I didn't. So what was last episode? Oh, yeah, that was um, Simone de Beauvoir in Une Femme, Une Femme, the Godard film. I said at the end of that episode that if anyone's listening to these episodes in order, because you don't have to, um, you really don't. I said in that last episode that this episode would be on Brian De Palma's sisters. And, okay, I lied again. I'm, it's not going to be on that. It's going to be on one of my favorite, favorite films of all time. It's Definitely in my top five. I think it's a very close second place after Blue Velvet. And it's Annie Hall. And it's starring who I think is my second favorite actress of all time after Susan Sarandon. Diane Keaton. And my favorite Oscar winning performance. She's just spectacular. I love everything about this film. Her performance just... It's not one of those, I think, you know, when I watch her performance in this film, it's not one that's like, wow, she's so, I'm just in awe of her. I want to be like her. Like, the reason I love it so much is because I think that I just, I see myself in Annie a lot. And I've been thinking this with a lot of Diane Keaton's characters that she plays with all of them, I just find, for me, they're so real, specifically for me. So I wrote in um my most recent Letterboxd review of this film that it's as if whenever Diane Keaton's characters are being written, it's as if the writer, even if it is Woody Allen, because you know, he's a scumbag, it's as if the writer is like, digging into the very deepest, darkest parts of my psyche and projecting them onto Diane Keaton in the film. That's how much I tend to relate to a lot of her characters. However, Annie Hall, I think, wow, like, this is the one that just stands out for me, and not just because it's the one that she won an Academy Award for, but it's just the one that I really resonate with. I also really resonate with her character, Sonia, in Love and Death. As I was saying before, I find that the reason why, in particular, this performance of Diane, the reason I really admired it was not in an... You know, it's not kind of like... Okay, because I find when you're looking up to a celebrity or whoever... There's often an element of, like, 
you're the fan and they're on the pedestal. You know, we talked about this in the very first episode of this podcast and Perfect Blue, parasocial relationships. So yeah, that's how most people look up to a celebrity. But however, I find with Diane and Annie Hall, it's as if, I don't know, this is going to sound cliche if I say that she kind of speaks to me on a personal level, but God, I'm kind of slurring my words. Yeah, um, do not note to self, don't podcast again after having a, f- a few glasses of champagne. I'm fine, I'm fine, okay, I can, I can get my thoughts together. I'll just spend like the first couple of minutes of this episode rambling on about how much I connect to Diane Keaton's characters, you know? I just thought that her performance in this film, it was so... It was more... Just calling it raw and authentic and, you know, all that stuff. It's just... That's such an understatement. Like, I can't call it that because it's so much more than that. But the thing is... It's like, it's so real to me, so it's not, when I'm talking about admiring her acting in that film, it's not like, my god, she's such a good actress, how does she do it? It's like, yeah, you know, she just, I just think that she just gets me. I'm probably sounding like I do have a parasocial relationship with her, and that's probably what I do have, because, you know, celebrities you look up to, they'll never know of your existence in a million years, but with her I of course she's yeah like you know it's still a parasocial relationship but it's kind of a different one because it's like yeah I, I connect with her as if we're on the same level I mean I've seen 46 of her films in my entire 18 years well no 19 this year 19 years I've been alive so yeah, I've become kind of a Diane Keaton connoisseur, and I can say that it's just there's something about her Annie Hall performance that's so, I, I don't know, it's not like, it's not, it just didn't seem like a performance to me, it just seemed like I was watching the human embodiment of my psyche, and all the Hang on, let me just read my letterbox review that I wrote on it, because, hang on, let me just, I'm opening the letterbox app, I'm scrolling through all my reviews on DILFs and going on about how much I love David Lynch and stuff, okay, <clears throat> let's have a look at what I wrote about it, so I said that, okay, this is what I wrote, by the way, make sure you follow my letterbox, it's I love DILFs. Very professional username. Okay, so I wrote, I could do a full analysis on why I think Annie is one of the characters that I see myself in, but in a completely genuine way. As most of the ones I relate to display only the most attractive and desirable traits about myself, while not showing my weaker ones. And whether I like it or not, I really see the aspects about myself and mannerisms and habits that I tend to try and mask in Annie. 
This film definitely isn't everyone's cup of tea, but I guess it's mine just because blah, 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 blah. I love Diane Keaton, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, see myself in the titular character. Yeah, you get the picture. That's what I wrote on it. So you get the picture. The reason, well, one of many reasons that I love this film so much is because I relate to the main character, but it's not in a in a way that's like, me seeing some sort of idealized or glamorized version of myself and relating to them because they're like, oh, like, just taking all the most positive, desirable, and attractive parts from my psyche and putting it onto a character on screen. Like, no, this isn't what Annie Hall is to me, because I find that, like, the negative aspects about myself that are just, like, my vulnerable and, like, weaker points, I see them in Annie Hall. Like, when I was watching this film, it kind of brought those out of me and made me realize that a lot of her traits that she displayed were ones of mine that I subconsciously tried to mask and didn't want to admit that I possess. My god, I really should go to bed because it's midnight and my hands are all shaky because, you know, I just drank some champagne. But I don't want to because I just rewatched the film, so all the ideas are still fresh in my mind. So I just, I have a lot to say about it. So going to try to keep awake just for this. I'm committed. So anyway, I find this film a really good one to, you know, I don't know, there's just, because the concept of it, it's so, I wouldn't say simple, but like the really basic, the whole plot line of it, it's just, it's about some guy who's kind of giving us a recount of his relationships, particularly one with the title character, Annie Hall, and kind of how they've shaped him as a person and how his childhood has just shaped his attitude towards, let's say, his outlook on life and particularly just, oh my god, I had a really good way to phrase this, but just left my mind. Okay, it's shaped his perspective on women, how he thinks of women, what he thinks, but what the f- Jesus Christ. Oh my god, okay, I had like a really simple, perfect phrase for it. I guess, yeah, it's showing how his childhood kind of shaped his outlook on women. Yeah, see, it was that simple. I could have just gone that right away, you know. And one of Freud's most prominent and easy-to-understand theories was... I'm going to put it in, like, really simple terms, because this is a theory that, you know, there's no um super fancy jargon or whatever attached to it. It's just easy to explain using simple terms. Okay, so Freud believes that childhood plays a 
big part in how adults behave now. Because he believed that experiences from your childhood just play a big part in, let's say, as I said before, one's outlook on life, their views towards, I know this is going to sound really heteronormative, but their views towards the opposite sex or like, you know, their, oh my god, I keep losing my train of thought, I should never drink while recording a podcast. Um, they're, you know, uh, shit, primal instincts, primitive, whatever the fuck it is, yeah. And then, of course, this ties into his very famous idea that I've talked about a lot in this series, and that's his ideas of how the layers of the human psyche are unconscious thoughts, pre-conscious thoughts, and the ones on the surface, conscious thoughts. And he believes that one's childhood could help shape the unconscious thoughts, which helps shape the conscious and pre-conscious thoughts. I might have brought up this example before, but a really famous example of one of Freud's psychoanalytical patients is one of his patients who was suffering from hysteria. And this psychoanalytical patient, they had some kind of desire to be degraded. Like, it was as if there was this gaping hole. It was a void, and in order to fill that gaping hole and void type thing, the only way to satisfy them was to be degraded and then they got some kind of pleasure from that. So if we're gonna tie this into Annie Hall, we can see that in the in one of the very first scenes, this is like one of the most well done, well executed scenes in the whole film, looking at it from an artistic perspective. So in this scene, it's like the male protagonist, Alvi, it's kind of like a flashback scene to his class in school and, you know, oh my god, my words can't do justice for how clever and creative this scene was. So it's like, okay, so it's the flashback scene, you know, you gotta watch it for yourself to understand what I'm talking about because I could barely describe this. So basically, it's his class with like all his schoolmates from primary school or elementary school or whatever you call it and he's like it's one of those things where the narrator inserts himself into the story so he's kind of he's sitting there in class and then he's talking about like you know all the weird quirks and reasons why he doesn't like the kids in his class and then he's going on about how so this is his older self who's like sitting in the class as if he's a student Oh, and mind you, for this scene and a lot of others throughout the film, a recurring directorial motif is the character, well, it's usually him, I'm pretty sure, yeah, it's always Alvi who does this. So he's facing the camera and talking to them, 
like as if we're an audience it's like an internal monologue you know if you've seen sitcoms like the office or peep show that's what they do well i think it kind of makes sense because basically he's a comedian so oh my god yeah i knew it this kind of reminds me of seinfeld you know there's bits where he's like talking to us as if we're the audience and he's like presenting a show to us I think it further highlights the fact that us as the audience, it's not like we're just watching a film. It's kind of like the protagonist, the narrator is kind of, you know, trying to bring us into what's going on inside their head. Because with most films, it's kind of, you know, two-dimensional, one-dimensional, whatever. It's like, okay, we're sitting back. We're watching what's being presented to us on the surface. And the nuances and stuff and subtext, that's all for us to figure out. So it's all like, you know, open to interpretation. But with this film, I noticed that there's bits where, you know, it's intentional that the nuance is delivered to us directly rather than us having to figure it out for ourselves. And that Yeah, it further brings us into the world of the film. Okay, so there's a really iconic scene. It's the quote-unquote honest subtitle scene. So what's happening is, you know, Annie invites Alvy to her place after a tennis match, and they're just kind of having a conversation, and, you know, one character says one thing, the other says something else, but they're subtitles. But it's not what they're actually saying. It's what they're thinking while they're saying what they said. So, for example, I don't know. They're talking about some kind of, like, pretentious intellectual shit. And then there's a subtitle that comes up. And it's like, oh, I wonder what she looks like naked or something like that. So, yeah, you know, you get the gist of it. It's what's going on inside their head. And I think that's really great because because I'm going to link this film to psychoanalysis. And I just think that that is a great directorial technique because it is emphasizing the fact that we want to see what's really going on inside the mind of the characters. I mean, you could argue that, oh, that's kind of dumb because the audience aren't going to think for themselves and that defeats the point of a film. Because, yeah, I know for me, one of my favorite things about watching films is you as the audience trying to figure out what the nuance is of course that just completely erases that but it's executed so well because it's proving a point that there are three well not just three you know there's layers and layers and layers of thoughts like you know in our psyche if we're gonna look at that scene the honest subtitle scene you know, I really suggest that if you want to fully understand what I'm talking about when I reference the film in these episodes, do watch the film or at least like look up the synopsis or watch a couple of scenes. So if we're looking at that scene, okay, I just want you to try and visualize this if you haven't seen it. But if you have seen it, that's great. Just visualize it as well. Okay, so the character says one thing, but the subtitle that pops up shows what they really mean like deep down on the inside so for example 
Alvi says something like, the medium enters in as a condition for the art form itself. Okay, so basically for a bit of context, Alvi and Annie are kind of, you know, trying to have a pretentious intellectual conversation. But that's what's being presented on the surface only. So yeah, anyway, he says that. And then, so if we're looking at this, like, you know, unconscious, subconscious, pre-conscious, fuck no. Okay, conscious, subconscious. No, 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 wait, no. Um, okay, no, let me do that again. Conscious thoughts, pre-conscious thoughts, unconscious thoughts. And the little gray area between unconscious and preconscious is subconscious. And actually, I think subconscious thoughts, it's a gray area. It's kind of, you know, floating around between all the different layers of thoughts in the psyche. So anyway, the words that come out of the mouth of the character in this scene, those are the conscious thoughts because... That's what they're presenting directly on the surface. And then the honest subtitles, which pops up in kind of like a satirical, ironic way to show what the character is really thinking. That is representative of... Uh, representative. Jesus Christ. I really need to do this. Like earlier in the day, it's almost one thirty. Anyway, um, yeah. So those honest subtitles that show what the character's really thinking. Oh yeah, what what did it say? Oh yeah, he was talking about how oh she probably thinks I'm shallow. Yeah, so he was saying out loud that stuff about like oh artistry and whatnot. But the subtitle showed what he was really thinking, and he was like, oh, shit, this chick probably thinks I'm really, you know, shallow and dense. So those subtitles, that represents the unconscious thoughts, because that's what he's really thinking deep down in his psyche, and not what he presents outwardly. Uh, and also, okay, I forgot to elaborate on this. I always do this, you know, this is why I need to write up notes and have a, well, actually, I did do that previously but they're not structured at all see this is why i need to write out like start to finish notes of what i'm going to talk about and when i'm going to talk about it because otherwise you know this is an example of that everything's just getting all over the place because i kind of just wing it but you know that's how i do it anyway so <laughs> i was meaning to elaborate on before that flashback scene where Alvi's like sitting in the class which was like from his primary school so he's then proceeding to narrate to us about how you know how the kids who he went to school with turned out like what they're doing with their lives and then there's like bits where the kid, like, each kid in his class, they stand up and then say something about what they're doing with their life. Like, I'm a politician, I'm blah, 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 or one of the most iconic quotes, I'm into leather. Yeah, whatever, you know, just, you get the gist of it. They just say shit that 
their adult self is doing with their lives. I was like, wow, that's such a cool directorial choice. And also, as I've been meaning to elaborate on before, I do this a lot. Oh my god. Um, anyway, yeah. I was going to elaborate on the fact that one of Freud's... Because you know how I was talking about how that psychoanalytical patient of Freud, um, they had this overwhelming desire to be degraded and humiliated. So it was revealed that Freud discovered that the reason that patient had that, like, sadomasochistic desire was because when they were kids, they would often, like, receive humiliating or degrading treatment from their father. Okay, I'm not going to go down a rabbit hole on the Oedipus complex. If you want to hear about that, listen to the episode on Blue Velvet. Like, you can hear all about that in that episode. Anyway, okay, back to this one. So this bit, it's more than just, oh, a cool, creative postmodern kind of directorial choice because you know it's like wow mind blown in your face it starts off as a flashback and then the narrator inserts himself into the story and then all these like kids but it's like their older self future self or whatever talking through them but it's actually like the younger child actor talking that's like wow mind blown that's such a cool directorial choice but it's actually symbolic because it does represent that really basic Freudian concept of childhood affecting adulthood and like your desires and what you, oh my god, I'm going to try to keep this like as PG as possible, what you desire, you know, I'm not going to be too graphic with that. We might get to that later. I don't know. I guess you could say a lot of this film really is a pastiche to the Freudian era when psychoanalysis was like the new thing. I think Woody Allen, um, oh my god, I don't want to, you know, talk about him in a positive light because he's a scumbag, he's disgusting, but I think that if we want to be objective, he does objectively make really good films. Like, come on, this is one of my, I mean, no, it's my second favorite of all time I think and he's got other great ones you know anyway okay so he really does tend to do those kind of things because I also watched Love and Death today so it's kind of a pastiche of um Russian literature like Dostoevsky and you know the war and whatnot and also had a few like existential themes in it whatever so okay what is pastiche okay I'll Elaborate on that. So it's like, okay, the dictionary definition is an artistic work in a style that imitates that of another work, artist, or period. So, yeah, I think that Annie Hall is a great example of that with the golden age of psychoanalysis. So when Freud was, like, becoming the in thing. I mean, mind you, in the 70s, Psychoanalysis was also a very prominent way of treating patients with psychological disorders and trauma. 
etc. Because a lot of the time throughout the whole film, they're kind of name dropping the term analyst. I mean, they don't say the full psychoanalyst term because, you know, what's the need for it? We know what you're talking about anyway. They're like, oh, I went to see my analyst today. My analyst this, my analyst that. Okay. And is this analyst in the room with us right now yeah you get it they're kind of like name dropping it it's like analyst 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 it's like when you watch cat on a hot tin roof and they keep saying big daddy all the time you're like oh my god say that one more time i swear to god take a shot every time they say it you know anyway yeah that's another story so yeah they really do tend to talk about seeing psychoanalysts a lot in this film and the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, wow, perfect. They're, like, actually showing that psychoanalysis, it's not just a concept that I like to analyze. It's actually a real practice that was still even done in the 70s, like, decades after. Oh, my God, see, I'm, like, so hesitant when I say this because my... My maths and, like, sense of time and stuff is so bad. Like, I'm terrible at taking guesses because... Okay, another, like, off-topic story. Um, I think I was talking about Wes Anderson with my mom. And then she was like, oh, how old is he? And then I was like, um, he's, like, 40? And then she was like, no, he's been around since, like, the late 90s. He was probably... He's probably not 40. So where, okay, where am I going with the story? Anyway, my point is I'm terrible when it comes to like years and dates and stuff and having like a concept of time. It's actually terrible. That's my point. Anyway, so yeah, um, even though this film took place like decades, years, ages, okay, I'm going to be vague and say ages, it took place ages after like the Freudian era. But it was still a common practice. Oh, also, I saw this film critic. It was not Roger Ebert this time. You know I have a bone to pick with him after that Blue Velvet review. Anyway, it was some film critic somewhere. I would cite them, but I can't remember. And this critic said that they suspect that the reason why the characters in this film are so hysterical. Like, they even say it themselves. Like, Annie's always talking about, like, oh, her moodiness and, like, her hysterical episodes, etc. And same with Alvy. Like, oh, that's it. Another, like, key theme in Woody Allen's films is neuroticism. Is it neuroticism or neurosis? One of the two. Especially, like, the New Yorker stereotype. You know the stereotype of the neurotic New Yorker? That's something that comes up a lot in his films. So, yeah. The two protagonists are quite neurotic. So the fact that the main characters are so mentally unstable and neurotic, it shows that clearly one of the messages that was trying to be conveyed was that a lot of mental health institutions like 
psychoanalysts, therapists, psychiatrists. They weren't that effective, so it was kind of seen as like a criticism of that. Another thing I just thought of is the film's... Oh my god, what's the word? It's not the slogan, it's not the catchphrase. It's like the really short one-sentence synopsis. Okay, so this one, it's a nervous romance. And I just thought a great alternative catchphrase, or whatever you call it, catchphrase, slogan, whatever. An alternative to that would be erotic, neurotic, erratics, or like erotic erratics, or neurotic erotics, because it's, if you think about it, this is presented as a rom-com film, but it's really psychosexual. It's very Freudian. And it's quite ironic, really, because the genre that this film is considered to be is romance, but I myself, along with, I'm sure, many other film critics, would argue that it's an anti-romance, which is basically a satirical take on romantic tropes, so it would have like a self-doubting hero as the protagonist, and they kind of fail to grasp the concept of romance, so that's exactly what we have here, because, you know, it's got two characters in a relationship, the relationship flops a lot, they break up countless times, you know, that's why it's in the slogan, um, what, what do you call it? I have no idea what it's called, um, the little, like, one-sentence description of the film, a nervous romance, like, I think that tells us everything we need to know about it. That tells us that it is an anti-romance because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, lots of repression from the two lead characters in terms of pursuing their relationship. There's a really great quote from Alvi, and it was in the scene where Annie and Alvi were in the plane and then they're talking about how their relationship wasn't working and... Alvi said that our relationship is like a shark. It has to keep moving forwards in order for it to work. And then they decided that, oh yeah, they got a dead shark in their hands, so basically their relationship is not working. And then they learn at the end of the film, well, well, it's not directly shown to us, it is quite implied that it's kind of, they're reflecting on why didn't their relationship work, and it's kind of showing us, because, you know, in the first place, the film is showing us that, you know, intimacy is important, etc. Something that's very apparent in the relationship between Annie and Alvi is intellectual compatibility, and, you know, I, I agree, because I think that's one of the most important things, not even, like, not just romantically, even platonically, I think if I can intellectually connect with someone, that kind of solidifies my relationship with them, and that's what makes me realize, oh, we clicked, we can, you know, not just on an emotional level, like, intellectual compatibility is very important to me, because with a romance film, when you think of the classic plot outline, it's 
the two main protagonists who are in love with each other, they go through all this stuff that kind of tests the waters of their relationship, and then they end up together, they end up falling in love together, but yeah, Annie Hall is an anti-romance because it's kind of subverting the typical romance narrative while still being presented as a romance because it plays against those conventional romance tropes because instead of the two main characters, Annie and Alvy, instead of them ending up together, they just, they learn that, you know, well, Alvy learns that his relationship with Annie, while it was presented as being like the relationship, the most important one for him, it ended just like all his others. And then they learn, oh yeah, it was yeah, nothing, we can just go back to being friends or whatever. In the words of Annie, la-di-da-di-da, la-di-da, yeah, whatever. Something that I picked up on is that the thing that makes Annie Hall completely different to other romance narratives is that, you know, let's take some classic examples such as um, Pride and Prejudice or Before Sunrise or if we want to go way back Romeo and Juliet, or, yeah, whatever. You know, those typical romance narratives. You know, I can't think of any more to list. The only thing that's coming to mind is Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and I don't think that's a romance, because it's... I don't... No. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay, this is my wake-up call to see more films that are romances, but... Just typical classic romance, ones that aren't psychosexual, Freudian, or anti-romance. Yeah, I need to see more classic romance, because I'm kind of struggling to name some. I think the fact that this film is my favorite quote-unquote romance film, um, that, is that a red flag? Is that... <laughs> I guess it tells you everything you need to know about me as a person and my outlook on things. And I just said it's not typical romance, it's just an anti-romance. Anyway, okay, what was I saying before? So my point was that, you know, if you take those examples I just listed, minus cat on a hot tin roof, because they don't fall under this category, I believe. So, yeah, you take those typical romance narratives... And the thing that they all have in common is that you as the viewer or reader, if it's in a book form, so we're all meant to be rooting for the leading couple. Like, the whole time, you're rooting for them. You want them to get together. You're like, come on, kiss, 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 make the first move. Please, for the love of God, solve all your relationship problems and just get together that's what you want from the leading couple in one of those films like in most of them the point of the romance in the first place is for the two lovers to get together but with Annie Hall on the other hand it's the complete opposite because I don't think we're meant to be rooting for Annie and Alvy to get together well you know if you're just watching it as if it's like any typical romance movie you might be but 
you know, I don't think, I don't think that we should, because the way that it ends up, it's like, oh yeah, maybe this was just another person they are fooling around with, and maybe they weren't meant to be together after all. I'm not saying that just because the vile man, Woody Allen, is with the beautiful Diane Keaton. I'm, that's not, no, 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 no. Okay, I'm not, I'm not being biased, but yeah, I just think that you can tell that once the film finishes, it's just, there's like a sense of emptiness. You're kind of left with emptiness because you're just like, oh yeah, they went through all that shit. You thought that they were going to get together, but then you realize you weren't meant to be rooting for them because it turns out maybe they just didn't belong together. Even though there's bits where you can see their relationship progressing, like, you know, in the very end scene where there's a little montage while Annie's singing and it's all their good times together. Oh my god, you know, when I was watching that, okay, I never cry in movies, I really don't, I'm not a big crier, but that bit, maybe I do admit I did cry a little, I don't know. Yeah, so, that kind of... It's quite a contradictory directorial choice, and of course that was intentional, because it's showing that, yeah, even though they could have gone forward in their relationship, they could have proved that they were meant for each other, but, you know, in the end, they just walked off. Yeah, Annie walks away from him, she's like, kind of casual about it, and it turns out, even if they thought they were meant for each other, maybe, you know, maybe it was just... I don't know, it's probably, like, something was wrong. They weren't really made for each other the way that they thought they were. So that just left me with the impression that even if they seemed like they were meant to be together, it turned out that they were just, um, they were just, you know, nothing to, no, 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 okay, I take that back. They weren't nothing to each other. They were just, as I said this before to Alvi, it turns out that, okay, so the fact that the film centered on Annie, like the title, her name, Annie Hall, and then it's mainly focusing on his relationship with her, it was giving us a false sense that, oh yeah, she's the one, it's the most significant relationship in his life, but turns out that maybe he does realize, there's a little hint of subtext that maybe, you know, she's not the one, maybe she's not his soulmate, she was just just another one of his ex-girlfriends. And I think, well, whilst it wasn't shown on screen or through dialogue, that was, like, the moment where it clicked for Alvi. That solidified his outlook on the opposite sex, well, the sex he was attracted to. And it made him realize that ever since childhood up until adulthood, his outlook on life has always been very very cynical because okay now we're actually going to continue talking about the theories i said we discuss and you know get all freudian and psychoanalytical so let's go back to the whole um childhood experiences affecting your psyche as an adult at the start of the film where he's talking about his childhood it's presented to us that he was very well this is what it's described as precocious in terms of sexual curiosity so I think that kind of you know that 
does explain why he is the way he is as an adult. Because in his childhood, it's as if the way that he developed was kind of out of the ordinary. Yeah, I noticed that it was as if before discovering that in order to fall in love with someone, you got to have some sort of emotional connection with them or some kind of bond or whatever. The thing that came to his mind first was, you know, sexual desires. So I think that explains why he had that outlook on romance as an adult. The first time in the film that presents to us their intimate sides as a couple is when, you know, they're like about to go to bed and then Alvi suggests that the two of them sleep with each other and Annie shows no interest in it and Alvi's like, um, he's quite persistent and he's like, oh, come on, we've like done this and that, surely we've, we like sleep in the same bed, we go to bed together, what's the point? And that just kind of, yeah, it clicks with me because I think that the fact that when he was a child, the thing for him that came first in terms of like discovering his views or like attitudes towards sex and romance was that before learning to form some kind of emotional bond with the other person, the first thing that came for him was like, you know, sex. So that shows that his early discovery of sexual curiosity as a child coming before you know romance and emotional connection I think you know showing that and then showing his attitude towards his partners particularly Annie it shows that there is a correlation between childhood and adulthood in terms of you know, how you view intimacy and relationships. And now I want to talk about this other Freudian concept that I did talk about in another episode. Oh yeah, it was the Blue Velvet one, of course. And this one is Freud's theory of the primal scene. So if you're not familiar with it, or if you kind of forgot it from that episode, what exactly is this primal scene? Well, basically, Freud described it as, in psychoanalysis, the primal scene is the initial unconscious fantasy of a child of a sex act between the parents, which organizes the psychosexual development of that child. So, in a lot of cases, since the child's very young, and of course their brain and their psyche is not fully fleshed out, they don't understand the significance of the primal scene. So it kind of provokes something in their subconscious and unconscious thoughts. That's kind of, you know, those, it kind of eats into those thoughts that's still masked below the surface of their psyche. And then I also talked about this in the Blue Velvet episode. And those thoughts that are kind of planted into their psyche, 
from witnessing the primal scene when they are very young. They can only be unlocked when provoked as an adult. So this can be either literal or metaphorical. I'm pretty sure that during Freud's time, I don't know, there are some cases where it was literal, like a patient you know, genuinely had psychosexual trauma from witnessing a sex act between their parents, or sometimes it wasn't a sex act. It was like, if we're going to talk about, you know, the Oedipus complex, where the child has some sort of desire to possess... Okay, so no, no, okay, you take, like, two parental figures, and one of them has the upper hand, and the other one's, like, powerless... So the child who possesses the Oedipus complex has this desire to take the place of the overbearing parent and then pursuing the submissive one. Okay, that's another story Um, that was meant for the Blue Velvet podcast. We're not talking about this in particular here. But yeah, anyway, you get the picture. So that's one aspect of psychosexual development. So... Yeah, for Freudian psychoanalytical patients, this primal scene can be literal, but also a lot of the time it can be metaphorical. Like, it can be literally anything that the psychoanalytical patient sees or fantasizes unconsciously, that kind of you know, it's quite shallow if I say sexual awakening, but psychosexual development. And in the film, there's a bit where, um, there's a bit where Annie comes home from the psychoanalyst and she's telling Alvi that, you know, the psychoanalyst was asking her questions and she told them about her relationships with her family and, you know, her feelings towards men, etc., And then she said that a memory was unlocked. Like, that conversation with the psychoanalyst jogged a memory for her. And the memory was that when she was a child, she accidentally saw her parents having sex. So that is such a Freudian thing because, as I was saying before, you know talking about the primal scene. This part in the film is very parallel to Freud's psychoanalytical disciplines because, and how the discipline works, is that the objective of the psychoanalyst is to start off with the patient's conscious thoughts, the thoughts that they're aware of. So the psychoanalyst, well in this case, yeah, Annie's psychoanalyst would ask her questions like, what's your relationship with your family like? How do you feel towards the opposite sex? Do you have sex a lot? What are your, you know, etc. Like all these questions about her sex life, I guess. And then, yeah, so it's kind of just scraping the surface. And their goal is to dig down and get to those unconscious thoughts, which can also unlock childhood memories, which help shape the unconscious thoughts that are deep down in your psyche. Remember, we talked about this in the Blue Velvet episode. If you've been here since the very beginning of the film Doctor journey, I'm sure you'd remember that episode very well. So what I'm saying here is probably making a lot of sense. So anyway, 
Yeah, back to Annie's psychoanalyst. What happens is that as they ask her all these questions, it's as if, you know, when you jog a memory, like, it could be anything. Like, sometimes, oh, you can hear a song and you're like, oh, it just jogs memory. I remember when I was doing this. You know, emotional memory. Because I don't know if I talked about this before, but in my drama class, we were learning when you're playing a character and you got to put on some emotion. Like, oh, this character's angry. Think of a time when you're a child and you got angry over something. Or, oh, this character's sad. Think of a time in your life when you were sad and then use that to channel this character you're playing. So the idea of jogging a memory, no matter how shallow it is, it's still very relevant to Freud's psychoanalytical discipline because it's it's also very relevant to the whole unlocking your unconscious thoughts because it's, oh my god, how am I going to articulate this? I'm sorry. Oh yeah, my take on it is, okay, so back to the whole memory jogging thing, you know, that reminds me, like, sometimes I would just, I don't know if anyone else does this, but sometimes I do tend to reflect and ponder on, like, why I am the way I am, like, I look at my greatest flaws and my abnormalities and my personality, and I just think, why why is that is you know it's like abnormal I just think there's got to be a reason to justify why I am the way I am and sometimes I would like kind of jog a memory of something that happened from my childhood and I think oh yeah that definitely shaped me as a person maybe I am unconsciously psychoanalyzing myself because I did just jog a memory that's a great example to help me explain this I remember once you know, I don't even know what the situation was, but I just remembered that I think there was this time when I was a kid that I just, there was, I don't know how long it lasted, but I had a phase where I wasn't a hypochondriac, but it was just like, I wanted, I would like lie about being sick because I just enjoyed the sympathy. I kind of had a, um, like, you know, a thing for sympathy because I remember this very vivid moment I think I was in the um the doctor's office with my mom and like my mom was at the doctor and then like was getting I don't, I don't know why she was there but yeah she was at the doctor and then I was like there in the room with her and I decided oh um this isn't fair why is she getting the sympathy, the attention? It's as if, like, because I wanted, I had this desire. I was like, oh, I want something to be wrong with me medically so I could get attention for it and sympathy for it. So I just, like, I started crying and then made something up. And it was like, the reason why I was crying was because I wasn't the person in the room who was getting the attention. It was, like, my mom. So that was just my reflex. And, you know, and then I was like, the doctor was like, oh, why are you crying? And then I said, oh, I don't feel very well. So we got the doctor to check on me. And then that just, now that I think about that, that was such a weird thing to do. I think that moment in my life, that was something that did shape one of my most flawed aspects about myself. Because 
I just find that subconsciously, sometimes, subconsciously, sometimes I'm not aware of it, but now I'm aware of it, I get a real kick out of people being sympathetic towards me. Like, if I'm sick and people give me sympathy, that really, like, that's something I just, it just, you know, it just gives me a kick. It's one of those things. So I think this is something that you can allude to Freud because I just remembered an experience from my childhood that explains why I have these certain, you know, hang on, let me phrase this better again. So that experience of when I was a kid that I only just remember now where I was, you know, sitting in that doctor's office and then started crying because I wanted like the attention to be mine but it wasn't it wasn't just a case of oh I'm an attention seeking child I'm gonna cry to get attention like actually I liked the idea of having something wrong with me because it meant that people would like give me their sympathy and if I was like this patient or like a subject that people could dote on that that really like wow really like kicked some life into me so um yeah and now that I think about that that really did shape the fact that I kind of always carried this unconscious desire to just want to gain sympathy from people. So yeah, for using that as an example, it shows that my experience from childhood shapes my unconscious thoughts. So yeah, is it making sense now? Um, childhood experiences shaping your psych your um unconscious thoughts now that i think about it so that you know that story where i was like crying in the doctor's office not because i had a valid reason to deserve other people's sympathy but because i wasn't getting sympathy and wanted the sympathy in the first place i think that you could say for this aspect of my unconscious thoughts that was my primal scene, like, that was the experience I had as a child that was what kind of shaped these unconscious thoughts in my psyche, and then it's all correlated, because that experience, plus my unconscious thoughts due to that experience, they kind of, they come out when provoked, because I've now recently realized that because of those two things, I just think that with relationships, not just like romantically and sexually, I find even platonically, I'm kind of, I'm drawn to like, let's say, seeking out <clears throat> um, parental figures. I don't have an Oedipus complex, by the way, but I'm just, I'm just drawn, I, I do have a great relationship with parents, it's just that I've always felt as if there's some gaping hole or something's missing and I need to fill it with someone who can kind of who I can see as a maternal or a paternal figure just in order for me to be satisfied like for my psyche to be satisfied so you know does that make sense like I'm looking at this one <laughs> this one incident that I had as a child and how that shape my psyche and how those unconscious thoughts of my psyche are brought out so I see all of it coming full circle when I just when I observe my own 
tendencies and stuff, you know? So if we're going to link that to Annie Hall, wow. Okay, maybe I wasn't lying when I said I do relate to her, but like, yeah. You know, <laughs> anyway, so uh, where were we? Um, The bit where Annie was talking about how um her psychoanalyst, so as they were psychoanalyzing her, she was talking about how, you know, um, they unlocked a memory for her, and that memory was her accidentally catching her parents having sex. So, that was her primal scene, which leads to her having these unconscious thoughts, which would become unlocked when provoked, as I said. So, I think that, you know... She had such a, like, an unusual or shocking experience doing that. Because, you know, it was something, you know, new to you when you're a kid who um catches people shagging. Like, wow, that's so out of the ordinary, you know. I think that having that experience, it's like, of course, that was key in her psychosexual development. But also shaped the way that she views intimate relationships. Because... There's a lot of parts of the film where she's kind of reluctant or hesitant to take, you know, um, let's say, emotional and intellectual connection further. And then, because, you know, at the very start, in the first scene where it shows Albie trying to get Annie to be intimate with him, it's, you know, she refuses. She's not interested in that and then he's like oh why come on am i repeating myself i feel like i've said this before in this episode i think i have i don't know okay well yeah his um his take on it is that she's like not intimate with him enough but hers is that he's way too intimate because there's the scene where it's a really good scene like i love how it's a split screen i think it's a, it's one of my favorite directorial choices when it's executed well, and they definitely did it well for this one. So Annie and Alvy are side by side, and they're both talking to their psychoanalysts, and the psychoanalysts would ask them the same question, but of course they give different answers. So there's a bit where they ask them stuff like, how often do you have sex? And then Annie would say, oh, um way too much like three times a week and then of course Alvi's psychoanalyst would ask him the same question and then he'd say oh um not that much maybe three times a week that just that comparison it shows the differences in their psychosexual development because for Alvi he became like sexually curious at such a young age like one of his teachers said that it was concerning for a kid that young to be sexually precocious. And then Annie, on the other hand, the pivotal moment in her childhood that kind of was a catalyst for her psychosexual development was witnessing, like, the primal scene between her parents. So you can see the difference there. Or, I don't know, when some people critique this film they say that it could be showing like the Freudian concept of the differences between the sexes so yeah I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole because I think the um 
that explains it all. Anyway, um, that's not my point. My point is that the fact that they both had a different primal experience or whatever it was that kind of fueled their psychosexual development shows that, you know, it really does play a big part in it because you can see there's Alvy who voluntarily as a kid had these thoughts that were like well past his years and that's why he has this like he's even though he's still very cynical when it comes to intimacy he's just or I don't know maybe it's I don't know it's probably not well actually maybe it is the fact that like differences between the sexes but if we're looking at it from this Freudian lens we can see that the fact that that was the moment that like the key pivotal moment in his life that helped develop his psychosexual complex was that he has a more positive outlook on it like physical intimacy to him it's like yeah come on you may as well do it it's a normal thing but for Annie she's more hesitant with that because her experience as a child that shaped her psychosexual complex and psyche it was far less pleasant and it was involuntary so I think that explains why they're so different in their views on intimacy and relationships. So if we're looking at Annie and Alvy's relationship for most of the film I can pick out that one of the reasons why they had such a turbulent relationship that eventually turned out to be a flop in the end was just because of their differently built psyches. As I said before, they both have very different views on intimacy. However, you know, you may think when you see them interact with each other that you know, maybe they are kindred spirits, but that's only with their conscious thoughts. It's only on the surface where they tend to connect and click because, you know, they are very intellectually compatible. You can see it in the film, like their chemistry intellectually, it's very like, oh yeah, they hit it off right away. But yeah, that's only their conscious thoughts that connect. If you want to delve into their pre-conscious and subconscious thoughts they're completely conflicting and incompatible see they're compatible with each other on the surface consciously but very incompatible pre-consciously and subconsciously and of course the fact that in terms of their views on intimacy which was shaped by you know, their childhood experiences, they're very different because if you look at Annie's experience as a child that kind of triggered her psychosexual awakening versus Alvy's one, this kind of proves my little theory about the whole concept of soulmates. You know, there's no yes or no answer for me whether I believe in them or not. And of course, this concept is something we can explore with this film because Annie and Alvy are presented as soulmates, but then we find out that you know maybe it's just better that they're not together. 
So, okay, here's the little film doctor theory on the concept of soulmates. Not saying I don't believe in them, I'm not saying I do believe in them, but what I am saying is that... Okay, so you got the three layers of the psyche. You got the conscious thoughts, pre-conscious, and subconscious. I think that in order for you to be soulmates, if you believe in them, quote-unquote soulmates with someone, it's not enough to just connect consciously, like... You know, that comes into the whole idea of intellectual compatibility and I'm kind of guilty of being someone who values that above all else. Like, I'm not a deeply emotional person who's like, oh, we have to emotionally connect. I'm not that kind of person. I'm like, okay, we intellectually connect. We're like, we're automatically uh, kindred spirits or whatever. So yeah, I think that it's not enough to just connect intellectually because that is just like scraping the surface. That's just the conscious thoughts. But if we go deep down to the subconscious or unconscious where you have like similar unconscious thoughts, I think that is what would make two people soulmates or like psyche mates because, you know, I don't know if I believe in all that soul kind of stuff the foundation of my beliefs so that everything's psychological so it's all in the psyche it's all in the psyche so yeah if you're gonna consider yourself soulmates with someone I think that it's not enough to connect on the surface you gotta have just similar unconscious thoughts deep down in your psyche in other words if you want to know whether you're soulmates with someone get psychoanalyzed together nah don't kidding kidding Now, I think that that really explains their relationship very well because, you know, they think they're soulmates, but they just are on the surface in their conscious thoughts. Because you see them hitting it off. They're, you know, connecting intellectually. They're having intellectual banter and stuff. And they're like name-dropping poets and recommending each other books and then seeing movies together and just, you know, acting how normal couples would act. But when it comes to unlocking their unconscious, they aren't so compatible then. So that's why I think that often when judging compatibility with another person, the psychosexuality of them is very important because I think this film does a very good job at showing that someone's psychosexual arc and development is very important and that when you find another person who you can be intimate with they can unlock it and then that kind of see that's where the whole bringing out certain traits in people comes in because when Alvi tries to be intimate with Annie and then when they eventually do get intimate with each other, them sharing an intimate experience with each other, that is the thing that brings out the traits that are hiding at the bottom of their unconscious thoughts that they weren't aware of. Like, they're the ones that get stored away until they're provoked and unlocked. Like, they both, I mean, not just on the surface, but deep down, they have this sort of 
neuroticism or neurosis. Still haven't figured out the correct term. And also this jittery and kind of anxiousness about them that gets brought out when they're being intimate with each other. Aha, uh-huh, so this is where one of my little unrelated stories comes in and ends up helping me explain this theory really well. So that little story about when I was in the doctor's office as a kid and blah 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 started crying blah blah because I wanted to have something wrong with me so I could get attention and how that shaped me as a person blah 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 blah. you know you get it okay so yeah that started off with a childhood experience and then since then since that would have been like the trigger for those unstable traits that I would possess if that makes sense what happens is that so the event happens so I'm going to compare it to the primal scene like the characters in it, Annie Hall like, of course my example this isn't the primal scene this is just like a childhood experience that shapes my psyche so comparing that to Annie Hall this is like what happens with the two main protagonists like they have this experience as a child they store those thoughts away until it's unlocked And then when they're, like, being intimate with each other, they're two conflicting psyches clash. So that's what happens. It's one of those things where, you know, the unconscious thoughts, as you know, they're only brought out when provoked. Like, same with my example of that that story of mine. Um, It's just as if after that happened, I stored them away deep down in my my subconscious and then I do tend to display those traits when they are provoked and that's the same as Annie and Alvy. to summarize it what happens is they hit it off they are intellectually compatible but they realize that's only on the surface so their relationship starts to hit rock bottom once they come to the conclusion that they didn't realize that their what they really desire unconsciously, which is, of course, the most deep level of thought in the human psyche, it's, for both of them, it's more than just black and white. It's far more complex than they think. And I think that's shown throughout the whole film, like, The point of it is that psychosexuality, the human psyche, we're just so complex. Like, even with some of Freud's theories, he couldn't even put into words how complex we really are. And when you put two complex individuals together, that's when, you know, the most unconventional of human behavior is brought out because one relatively erratic and neurotic person is complex enough but you get two different polar opposite complex erratic people with all these like conflicting complexities different childhood experiences therefore planting 
different things into their psyche, which means, you know, they're not going to connect the way they thought they would, because as I keep reiterating, connection intimately, is that even a word? Intimately, I'm going to pretend it's a word if it's not. Connection intimately, it's so much more deep than surface level depth. I keep saying this. Everything's so much more deep than surface level depth. It's like, you gotta dig deeper with it. I'm gonna try to leave you guys with this last thing because this episode is over an hour. Most of my episodes are like 25 to 30 minutes at the most, but I guess I can just talk about this film for hours. I just, you know, I mean, of course, it's, you know, it's my second film after Blue Velvet. Of course, I can talk about Blue Velvet for hours. Everyone knows that. But I mean, with this episode, it's way longer. I think maybe with the Blue Velvet one, I had like concise notes. But with this one, I just, I'm talking off the top of my head. So thanks for bearing with me. Anyway, okay, my final take is that since this film is an anti-romance and satirical towards romance, while it may appear as just, oh yeah, it's a satire, it's just kind of taking the piss out of, you know, classic romance narratives, I think the deeper meaning to making it an anti-romance, well, of course, I can't put words in the mouths of the writers but you know if you take an English every year at high school you do get quite used to putting words in the mouths of writers it almost becomes second nature because that's exactly what I've been doing every single episode anyway I think that the reason why this film was written as an anti-romance was not only because it wanted to take the piss out of classic romance narratives because oh they're so unrealistic and romanticized or overly idealized i think that the reason that this decision was made was because it would show us that human beings are so much more complex than we think we are and intimacy and relationships and romance It's so much more complex than we think they are. Like, it's more than just two people fall in love and then they, you know, experience a few hardships in their relationship and then eventually it all gets resolved and everything's perfect. Like, that's that's not what it is. It's far more complex. Like, this isn't me taking a dig at other romance narratives because of course there are some great ones out there but if we want to look at it realistically and look at the psychology of it this one shows us like the most realistic version of it because the reality is the human mind and psyche it's so much more complex than it is portrayed in other pieces of media because you know there's like and there's layers and layers of depth to it and sometimes attraction human attraction it's not always pretty it's not dreamy or how we picture it or 
even predictable because since our experiences are all so different, even though Freud claimed to have one explanation for everything, I mean, now that we think about it, since we've all had different experiences that have shaped us as people and shaped our views of the world and other people, there's a lot of unconventionality that comes with interacting with people and being intimate with people and having relationships with people. Um, well, to elaborate on that statement I just made where I said that Freud would often claim that he has one explanation for certain things when in reality we're far more complex than that. That's such a contradiction in itself because we're using Freud to justify why we're so complex, yet a lot of his theories involve him putting us in boxes and thinking it's all black and white, this and that, yet we're using him to justify why we as human beings have complex psyches. Well, to explain that paradox, I think that, you know, a lot of his theories could be more, I mean, no, well, less um, exclusive and specific and more general. But then again, a lot of Freud's theories can be interpreted and applied to different people and their different experiences. So that's how this is quite paradoxical. This is really proving my point that we are complex beings. Oh, and one last thing. An aspect of the film that... <laughs> oh my god, I don't want to get too vulnerable in this episode, but... <laughs> An aspect of the film that I just, I don't know, just kind of clicked for me and kind of made sense for me was that... Oh, and another thing I wanted to point out. At the start, when Albie was doing that direct address to the audience and, you know, talking to the camera, and he recited this quote, and it was something like... I wouldn't want to belong to any club that would have someone like me as a member. And that just kind of clicked and made sense for me because you could tell that throughout the character's life he had this kind of, um, what's it called, subconscious desire to be rejected. Like, he enjoyed being a black sheep. Like, he had some sort of crazy individual subconscious desire to be rejected and outcast as if he kind of was drawn to being the black sheep. This is kind of similar to that psychoanalysis patient of Freud that I was talking about before. The one who was unconsciously drawn to being humiliated and degraded because that's the treatment they received as a child. So I think the fact that Alvi resonates with that quote so much just shows us that he's subconsciously drawn to unconventionality. Oh, and this is also shown later on in the film where, okay, this is one of my favorite quotes in the film. It's one of the most iconic ones. He said, when my mother took me to see Snow White, everyone fell in love with Snow White. I immediately fell for the Wicked Queen. Need I explain more? I don't think so, because this is pretty self-explanatory, because, you know, further emphasizing the fact that he's just 
drawn to unconventionality. He's not going for the popular, socially acceptable pick. He's going for the unconventional, quote-unquote, normal pick. And that quote is far more symbolic than you may even think. Because the whole film, it's just that him and Annie, they're both nervous wrecks when they're in this relationship with each other. And, you know, okay, Alvy, he's, even though, like, yeah, Woody Allen's a scum, but just pretend that he doesn't exist and it's just the character of Alvy, because we're talking about the film here. Um, He's had, like, so many wives and previous relationships, yet the one he's the most fixated on is Annie. Like, reflecting on all his other girlfriends and wives and stuff, they were all a lot easier to deal with than Annie was. Like, they didn't have hysterical episodes to the degree that Annie did, and they they were far more enthusiastic about sleeping with him than Annie was. But the one he was the most hell-bent on and still didn't recover from his lovesickness was Annie. Like, of course, the title of the film is Annie Hall, and she was the one that he was obsessing over the most when he was reflecting on his previous lovers. So, I think, of course, this is another very important psychological concept, and it's quite simple to grasp. It's just that, you know, he's clearly drawn to what he can't have and of course some people believe that someone or something is far more attractive when they're unattainable and when they're out of reach after he said that there was a little cartoon of him and the evil queen who was voiced by annie so that shows that he was you know when he was a kid and he was watching snow white and he fell for the evil queen instead of Snow White. And then in his adult years, the fact that Annie was the lover of his who he was so fixated on in comparison to the rest, that just... So that shows that he's drawn to what he can't have. And, of course, the comparison. Like, you see, he's talking about how he had that mindset as a kid drawn to the unconventional and then now in his adulthood he still possesses that mindset annie the most unconventional hysterical neurotic difficult hardest to reach out of all his lovers she was the one that he still went after and i think that really does show the complexity of human attraction, the human mind, and I just think that parallel, like, wow, it's not something you would get just after first watching. I just think that, you know, that completely summarizes and solidifies Freud's ideas of childhood experiences being the starting point for what helps you develop your psychosexuality. And it looks like we're at the end of this episode. Oh my god, thank you so much for tuning in. It's been 
one of my favourite episodes I've done because I just love talking about this film. It holds such a special place in my heart. So, yeah, it's been great analysing it. So make sure you join me for the next episode where we are going to be discussing a film that I'm not going to name because every single time I do this at the end of an episode and then I record the next episode, I always change my mind and it ends up being a completely different film because, you know, I can't stick to a schedule. So stay tuned for that, whatever film it may be. In the words of Annie Hall, I gotta go. Oh, also, oh my god, I'm just gonna recite some of my favourite lines from the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I dabble. I really like to take a serious photography course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, la-di-da. You're a terrible driver. What did you do? Grow up in a Norman Rockwell painting? My god, that impression was terrible. I probably sound more like a character off The Sopranos than Alvy. <laughs> You're a little hostile, you know that? Okay, if I were to recite all my favourite lines from the film, we'd be here for hours, so I'm gonna cut it off here. Also, you know, one thing I picked up is <laughs> the more times I watch Annie Hall, the more I tend to pick up some of Diane Keaton's vocal tics. Like, sometimes I hear her voice kind of coming out in mine, and I'm like, oh, Christ, maybe I'm just kind of latching on and like absorbing the traits of the people I look up to. It's kind of not healthy, but yeah, I had, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. See, <laughs> you know, I could really recite a whole monologue doing Diane Keaton's acting voice. Yeah, you know. <laughs> oh my god, Annie Hall's. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh, yeah. It's like in Fargo where they're like, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, you betcha, yeah. Anyway, I don't even know where I'm going with this comparison, so I'm going to sign off now because we'll be here for hours. And I hope everyone here is tuning into the next episode, whatever film it may be, we'll find out.